Well, probably start with my generation and pass, and the other ones up. Yeah, they go one way or the other. Yeah, but yeah, I'm just one of the million podcasts that are out there. Alrighty, Mr. Fate, I appreciate you taking time because right now I can't imagine that you have a lot of it. I do not have a lot of time. <laughs> um, at least I, I, I don't have a lot of time for my family. I'm, I still maintain my, my job and what I'm doing uh, with regards to the law director. That's very critical and essential. Yeah. We're doing a lot of important things there. And um, yeah, I just, uh, I don't have a lot of time with my family. I try to seal those moments when I can. I love getting my kids up in the morning and uh, feeding them breakfast, uh, going over things. And, uh, and usually they're, they're awake when I get home at night from knocking doors and I, I get to tuck them in and talk about their day. So tell me about, we're, we're looking at your life on the campaign trail, but tell me about you, Marvin Fate. I mean, just like, well, I know that, I know, let's, I'll start there. I, you are the New Philadelphia City Prosecutor. Well, and I see you at council meetings. Yes. Uh, technically, law it's director, the excuse me. city law director. Yeah. Um, the city prosecutor who works for me is uh, Lacey Felix. Um, yeah, I've been the uh, New Philadelphia city prosecutor since uh, I was elected in 2011. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've been doing that job for almost 10 years now. Um, one of the things, half of what I do, half of what I do is uh, prosecuting cases. I actually go into court and physically prosecute cases myself, which is unusual because for a law director, my, my predecessor who was in there for 24 years before me did not do that. Yeah, I do prosecute cases personally. Uh, but in addition to that, I oversee three prosecutors, okay. uh, including, this, including the city prosecutor yeah. who uh, works for me. And all three of them are, are, are supervised and under my direct, uh, direct guidance. Um, and together we handle um, over a thousand criminal cases a year, which is more than anybody in the entire county does. Uh, why do you choose to be involved? Why do you why do you go into court? Why are you part of this uh, prosecuting team? Well, it's important to me. Um, I the very first jury trial we had there. Uh, once I took office, I I personally handled that jury trial. And we won, and it went up an appeal, and we won on appeal also. Yeah. Um, it, it's very important to me um, what I'm doing. I've been a trial attorney my entire career. Mm-hmm. I've been practicing law here for almost 20 years, and uh, and that's all I've done is trial law. Um, I was always bored with, uh, you know, just doing contracts or um, uh, looking over paperwork or shuffling papers. And, and I love being in the courtroom. I really like being in the courtroom and I like the, the give and take of the adversarial process. Yeah. And, uh, and it's very important to me and it's very important what we're doing, you know, given it's, it's important to the citizens of New Philadelphia mm-hmm. and the 13 townships that we prosecute for. You know, some of the, the questions that come to mind would have to basically boil down to who gets into law? I mean, what, what attracts you to this? Because this is not an easy thing to do, and a lot of times it's not a pretty thing to do. No. Um, well, I'll tell you, I, before I went into law, I, I worked in uh, government. Um, I had uh, I'd been a press, assi- a press assistant to um, uh, our, our now governor, Mike DeWine, when he was lieutenant governor and ran for the U.S. Senate. Okay. And then I ran the, uh, a U.S. congressional district office here in, in 1995. And um, one of the things that frustrated me so much about that job is that people, at the district level, people are coming in to see you and they mm-hmm. need help. And I can't tell you how many times I had to tell somebody, you need to seek legal advice. Yeah. And, it, and that just blew my mind because I could not believe that there is... Uh, that a lawyer could do something that a United States congressman couldn't do, <laughs> and um, so I'd always had I'd always had the uh, 
the drive to go into public service. Yeah. Um, that, that was something I was raised with. My father spent 42 years in education here as a teacher, coach, and guidance counselor and principal. My mom was a former school board member. And we were just raised to believe in my house that, you know, uh, as the Bible tells us, to whom one much is given, much will be required. And that we felt that we had an obligation to give back. So um, the combination of seeing that there were things that a lawyer could do that a United States congressman could not, yeah. combined with the fact that I wanted to make a difference with my life is what prompted me to go into law. And uh, my first job as an attorney was working in the public defender's office. Um, so that was that was unique because um, I'm I'm actually the only candidate that's been on both sides of the issue. I've been both a prosecutor <laughs> and and a defense attorney. Yeah. But as a working in the public defender's office where I got my feet wet. I fought for and protected the rights of, um, uh, of the poor in court uh, to make sure that their constitutional rights were protected. Uh, I then opened my own private practice in 2003, started it out of my basement, and uh, eventually bought my own space. And uh, I still have that law office to this day. I've, I've operated it for 17 years, all as a trial attorney uh, with a combination of doing a lot of family law and a lot of criminal defense work initially. But in 2011, when I was elected law director, I couldn't do the criminal defense work anymore. Yeah, and as law director, I mean, getting into that, when were you elected first? 2011. In 2011, I mean, okay, so you come in, everybody seems to have a plan when they come into whatever offices that they're running for. I mean, what, what, do, you, what do you see in 2011 that you began working on? And I mean, where are we now? Well. Uh, the first thing I did in 2011 was I actually cut the budget. Um, I thought that there was, being, there was too much being spent, and I ran on being fiscally responsible, mm -hmm. which is a core principle of mine. Uh, I'm happy to say that since 2011 to the present, I have not increased the law director's budget one time. It's been exactly really? the same. Yes. That's <laughs> I mean, interesting I, to me because a lot has happened. I mean, I've seen yeah. a lot of growth. Uh, at the it, in the law director's office and in yeah. your prosecution office, well, I did I did gradually increase the prosecutor's uh, budget, but I didn't do that until I just started doing that about three or four years ago. Okay, and, yeah. And a large reason for that was uh, we were losing fantastic prosecutors to mm -hmm. uh, go and work for the county, um, and the reason we were losing that is because we we weren't paying them yeah. on par with that. Okay, and so I. I, I wanted to make sure that they were getting paid um, at least what the public defenders were who were going in there. And I wanted to be competitive with the county prosecutors, yeah. particularly given, you know, we, like I said, we prosecute twice as many cases as they, as they do. And they have six prosecutors. I have three. Yeah. Four, four counting myself. And I got I to gotta make sure I'm splitting in my head the difference, uh, law director's office, prosecutor's office. Because yeah, yeah, there's, there's two separate entities that we're talking right, about. Right. I wear two different hats. Okay. Um, as the law director, there, there's a lot of emphasis put on the, on the, on the criminal uh, prosecution side. Yeah. But that's only half of what I do. <laughs> the other half of what I do is I'm actually the attorney for the, for the city of New Philadelphia. That's my client. Okay. Um, I make sure that um, if the city gets sued, uh, I make sure that I'm the one that's going to defend them. Um, I also, part of my job is making sure that the city doesn't have liability and doesn't end up in a, in a, in a case where they're getting sued. Um, that's a huge part of it. Um, I also, uh, if something's been uh, done to the city and I have to sue on behalf of the city, I do that. And I have done that before in the past too. Okay. Um, in fact, I, uh, when, uh, when Judge Von Allman, our municipal court judge, uh, there was an action brought against her by a criminal defendant in the uh, Ohio Supreme Court. 
and I actually successfully defended her in the Ohio Supreme Court as uh, as our law director. Yeah. Um, so that that's unique. You don't have too many attorneys that got to actually defend a judge <laughs> in front of the Ohio Supreme Court. Yeah, that's a that's a weird pairing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, so from 2011, we're we're nine years later now. Where do we stand as a city? I mean, from your perspective as law director. What is what faces New Philadelphia? I mean, what challenges lie ahead, or what what have you been working on? Well, the big challenge is, is uh, drug and criminal activity mm-hmm. uh, that has only increased with uh, the COVID shutdown. Um, we've seen a dramatic rise in uh, drug overdoses. Uh, we've also seen a dramatic rise in um, in uh, domestic violence cases uh, where people were living together and might not have had another place to go and sometimes found themselves in an unsafe place. Um, Among the things that I've worked on, and I did this before the COVID, um, I created the very first full-time crime victim advocate program in uh, the New Philadelphia Municipal Court. Mm -hmm. Our municipal court had been here since the 1970s, never once had a crime victim advocate. And uh, I've, that was a goal of mine uh, very early on. Yeah. I, I, it's obtained through a grant from the uh, Ohio Attorney General's office. And I tried twice to get it. Um, we, did, we didn't get it. I invited them to come up and take a look at what we did. And they were shocked by the number of, of cases that we had that involved uh, crime victims, where, yeah. where a crime victim advocate would be important. And you know, for your listeners who don't know what a crime victim advocate is, that's a uh, professional, uh, that works out of my office that actually goes into court and represents crime victims, not the criminals, but crime victims, mm-hmm. and to make sure that their rights are protected and that they have a voice in our proceedings. It's very important, as you can imagine, to uh, a person that's been a victim of domestic violence. Uh, in some cases, we're making sure that that person is uh, getting the help they need, whether that might be uh, access to temporary shelter for her and her children so that they're safe. Um, access to counseling so they can get to a better place because oftentimes domestic violence is, is accompanied with uh, serious uh, uh, mental and emotional abuse that yeah. uh, the family has to go through. And ultimately, we also make sure they get a protection order, which is an order from the court that makes it illegal for the uh, abuser, once he gets out of jail, to come around them again without being arrested. And for me, that's something that, that I'm very um, passionate about. Uh, like I said, the, the municipal courts have been here since the 1970s, did not have a crime victim advocate until I brought one in. And um, I'm, I'm proud to say that uh, after two years, we just got renewed for, a, renewed for a third year. And generally, once you get that grant, you can, if you continue to, to do everything the way you're supposed to, you can keep that around for a long time. Yeah. And uh, that's something that I'm, I'm very uh, pleased with uh, that we're doing uh, because it's very important to, uh, to uh, crime victims. Um, to have somebody there in their corner for a change and for their voice to actually be heard. Um, in addition to that, among the other things I'm doing as, as law director, um, I to fight the, uh, the drug uh, abuse issue, I um, made it easier for um, the city to tear down abandoned buildings. Uh, I, 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 we have what are called teardown orders um, that are linked to the Ohio Revised Code. And I tied our teardown orders into the fire code so mm-hmm. that um, we can have our, our fire chief or someone from the fireman's office inspect the building, determine that it's not safe and that it's a, it's, it's a problem for the community. community. And then um, 
we can issue uh, what is called a teardown order, which means that the owner has uh, so much time to tear the building down. If it's deemed an emergency, it's got to be torn down immediately. Um, if they don't tear it down, we're going to tear it down and we're going to put the uh, tax lien on on uh, on the property owner to, to pay us back, yeah. meaning that that property can, can't get sold without uh, that lien being paid off so that the taxpayers are made whole. Yeah. Um, the, uh, where I also enacted, uh, drafted legislation that uh, made it easier to go after uh, abandoned properties uh, to hold them criminally liable. Um, the teardown orders are a civil matter. The criminal liability is um, uh, going after uh, landowners who have just abandoned property, allowed it to fall into disrepair, and and aren't doing anything with it. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason that's important is because abandoned properties um, become safe havens for uh, drug abuse and, uh, and drug dealers. Um, so we had, just a few weeks ago, we had a, a property that we ended up tearing down that caught fire twice because people were uh, abusing meth uh, in in the uh, in the abandoned building. Okay, that that's where I was going to ask. I mean, how do you come to that conclusion? Of, I, I wasn't I wasn't exactly lost. There's some connecting the dots, but at the beginning you say you're addressing the drug problem, and then we're tearing down abandoned properties. So yeah. I'm interested. In this, so that comes from experience, from what you've seen. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the abandoned buildings uh, are are where a lot of meth heads and uh, drug abusers go to abuse their drugs. Mm -hmm. um, and it's become a huge problem. Like I said, we had one that caught fire twice um, because of meth activity in that building. And we've since had that building torn down. Yeah. So, so that's, that's critical. That's why that's, that's important. You don't want, these abandoned buildings are oftentimes used for uh, drug illegal drug activity. And that's, that's why it's, it's critically important. Um, more recently, um, we went after, I, I personally participated two weeks ago in an inspection of the Oyo Hotel. Mm -hmm. um, we've had uh, seven drug overdoses there in just the last uh, year, wow. um, which is a huge drain on our, our resources. Um, we also uh, have reason to believe uh, that there is illegal activity going on there in the form of um, uh, drugs and maybe even prostitution. I can't really go into the details sure. of that because that's part of an ongoing investigation. But uh, the uh, the uh, state fire marshal, when he inspected it, I personally went with him and went into these rooms. We found a crack pipe in one of the rooms. Uh, you also found a lot of uh, drug paraphernalia, which was spread uh, throughout the, the area as well yeah. as on the grounds. Um, uh, I believe there were 65 fire code violations wow. um, uh, that uh, were encountered there. We had uh, beds that were um, in infected with um, bed bugs. Uh, there was blood and feces in some of the rooms. It was just abhorrent. Huh. <laughs> and so, and so um, what we're, I, I just took the first step in what's, filing call, in what's called filing a nuisance action uh, to bring that under control. The first step was, was the fire marshal coming in and, and citing them. Um, if they don't have everything rectified by uh, the end of December, uh, that building will be padlocked. Okay. Um, depending on what happens with the uh, pending criminal cases that come out of there, uh, I'm going to take action to file what's called a nuisance action, which would allow the city if to get a court order to have that, that building shut down permanently and, and raised. Yeah. Um, 
similar to what we did, uh, you know, you talk about our teardown orders. Um, this one didn't have drug activity, but there was, it was an eyesore, the old Hong Kong buffet, where yeah. there's now a really nice Verizon store there. <laughs> um, that was the first building that I had torn down. Okay. Um, but uh, it was but, a staple. In, yes. the, in the line of tearing down old, decrepit buildings. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it, it benefits the city in, in multiple ways, but uh, particularly when it comes to drug activity, and, and there's just a high level of drug activity, as evidenced by our seven overdoses that we've had there. And the Ohio Revised Code allows you to uh, bring what's called a nuisance action if, it's, if something becomes a drain on city resources. Mm -hmm. And clearly, if we've got to send police and fire uh, units and uh, EMS units there on a regular basis, that to uh, to address drug overdoses there, then the you city know, finances. Right, you you might have somebody that's having a heart attack someplace else that's yeah. not getting those resources, and so it's it's become critically important. Um, in addition to that, I I was very active during the uh, government shutdown with regards to COVID. One of the things that I I made as a top priority there was making sure that our first responders had the uh, PERS uh, equipment. Uh, that they needed, or not PERS. Yeah, uh, uh, PPE. <laughs> yeah, PPE. We have all kinds of acronyms <laughs> stuck in our head right now. <laughs> I know, I'm learning all of them. Um, but um, it was to make sure that they had the, the, the access to the proper equipment. Yeah. And I also made sure that uh, legally they had access to the right information so that they knew when they were going into a home what precautions they needed to take okay. uh, in going in there. And, and that was something I fought for to make sure that that happened. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, if our first responders go down, we're in big trouble. Yeah. And and so it was very important to me to protect our first responders, both fire, police, and EMS, uh, to make sure they were protected. And that was something that I, I worked uh, with the county as well as uh, other health administrators in the area to make sure it happened. Sitting in on council, I mean, you've always been a major advocate of, especially our fire department, yes. uh, not to mention just our first responders. Go in on that. I mean, that's, that's part of the man that is Marvin Fate. So tell me about yeah, that. Yeah, that's a big part of who I am. Um, well, the, the New Philadelphia Fire Department has saved my family's life twice. Um, when I was uh, just 13 years old, I was hit on, a, on my bicycle and uh, suffered a, a concussion and uh, a fractured skull, uh, resulted in me being in a coma for 72 hours. Oh, wow. And um, the doctor, after it was all done, I spent about three weeks in the hospital, a week in intensive care. Uh, the doctor told me after the fact that 75% of the people with that type of head injury die before they arrive at the hospital within 15 minutes of arriving. Wow. And uh, so I, I only had about a 25% chance of surviving at all. And it was the New Philadelphia Fire Department that, that rescued me from that and made sure I got to where I needed to be and took the appropriate steps. Mm -hmm. uh, Dan Fate, uh, who's a retired firefighter, was one of the ones. He, he tells me all, all he did was pick me up and, and put me in a... In a uh, ambulance and I said you, you can't lot, believe that you did a lot more than that <laughs> <laughs> you, you know because if you don't get me in that ambulance yeah. I'm still laying there and I'm not here anymore yeah um and 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 actually you know you ask how did that that tied into you know my personal and religious beliefs that you know God gave me a, another chance and that I have an obligation to do something with that and to mm -hmm. make a difference which is what I've always tried to do whether it's in my private practice or as an elected official. Mm -hmm. um, 
but in addition to that, then they also saved my mother, who had a widowmaker heart attack uh, about 10 years ago, um, and uh, did not. She did not have a heartbeat for 34 minutes. They arrived at the house uh, within five minutes of uh, her being uh, going into cardiac arrest. Uh, the people who have a widowmaker heart attack usually have about a four to seven percent chance of survival. Wow! And that's because if you don't get CPR within the first four minutes you're usually gone. Yeah. Uh, my father did CPR on her and, um, and helped save her life. Um, they got her to the hospital and um, took really good care of her. They also, I, there were some technical things they did that I won't go into that literally saved her life on the way there. Wow. Um, that, that was critical. So as far as the new Philadelphia Fire Department's concerned, and as well as our, you know, the police were involved in that too. Um, Sometimes they're the first EMS on scene, yes. essentially. Yes, that's right. And, um, you know, as far as I'm concerned, they are real-life heroes that that literally saved the life of my family. And there's almost nothing I wouldn't do for them, which is which is why I was a big advocate and, and really worked really hard uh, to clear the legal hurdles and to personally advocate for us having the first new fire station here in 111 years. Yeah. And, uh, and that was critical. And, um, and I've worked closely with the fire chief to also uh, bring in uh, additional firefighters and to, to draft legislation that cleared those hurdles, which has allowed us to bring in a total of eight new firefighters, uh, which are, you know, are largely EMS yeah. uh, personnel. So, yeah, that was very important to me. And that's, that's, uh, that goes with my public service. And, um, and for me, it's very personal personable for uh, the reasons I've talked about. And everybody listening might say, man, this guy's so familiar. He is, maybe I've seen him through the city. Maybe I've seen him through a private practice or just, maybe they've seen you running because you run a lot, don't you? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> yeah, I used to, uh, I used to have, um, I used to have type two diabetes. Um, and then I, I took this wonderful class down at, uh, at uh, Trinity Hospital that Dr. Tim McKnight gives called Fit for Life. Um, through that, I completely changed my lifestyle to a more healthy one. And uh, that actually led to me losing about 50 pounds. Oh, wow. And um, I've only known you as this Marvin. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that was about five years ago. Okay, uh, that's that about I, right. That I took that class and I was about 50 pounds heavier. I was on four different kinds of medication for type 2 diabetes. I'm now off all that. And uh, I completely control everything with diet and exercise. And yeah, I do run. I run about... Uh, I try to run at least three miles three to four times a week, although that's been difficult with the campaign. Well, I mean, you've been getting those miles in, and that was, that was kind of my segue. I mean, what has the past, what, eight months, nine months been like? Wow. It's been... <laughs> <laughs> It's been a whirlwind, you know. Um, you, we all feel like that. I can't imagine yeah. somebody that's on a campaign trail. Well, right. So, so you know, in, in addition to, you know, being a husband and a father to my children and being the law director and uh, managing my the, the cases that I had in my private practice, um, I, you know, I also decided to run for judge. And... Um, <laughs> which actually wasn't that unusual. Um, my family's kind of used to that. Um, when my wife and I first got married 10 years ago, um, within a, uh, we got married in uh, October of 2010, October uh -huh. 23rd, 2010, and um, I ran for law director in 2011. Uh, <laughs> we, we built our house um, in 2011. We had our first child in 2011. So we were literally living above my law office um, <laughs> when we were when we were nine months 
pregnant with um, my oldest son, and I was in the middle of a campaign, and we were going through all the headache of trying to build a house. So really, that's not that bad of, bad of a, a situation um, uh, compared to what we're doing now. You know, it's just yeah. it's like the uh, plate spinner that you would see on the old Ed Sullivan show. Just trying just, to keep everything. Keep all those plates in, in, in order. So I function much better under pressure. Mm-hmm. I, I function much better when I'm, I'm really super busy. Um, it, it keeps me organized, keeping me, keeps me on, on my toes. Yeah. That's part of why I've, I've always liked trial, trial work. You have to be on your toes constantly in the middle of a trial. It's one of the most, uh, taxing mental exercises you can, you can go through. Yeah. Um, but, um, so, so it hasn't been too different than that. Um, you know, we're maintaining the, the family and, and doing my regular job. And, um, what I would do uh, normally is um, every day when I was done with work around four, four thirty, I would go and start knocking doors until it got dark. Um, when they had the uh, stay at home order, I didn't knock doors during that period in time. Um, instead, I actually made phone calls to people, uh, which I really didn't like doing because I felt like a telemarketer. I, I, I much more prefer one on one talking to somebody. Yeah. But um, uh, once the stay at home order was lifted, then I started knocking doors again. And uh, when I knock a person's door, I knock and I back up six feet. Um, so I'm always maintaining social distance. Mm-hmm. Everybody understands what I'm trying to do and sure. for the most part really appreciates it. In fact, one of the things I had the hardest time with was uh, particularly um, when I was uh, talking to senior citizens is you know, they just wanted to talk to somebody. Yeah, anyone, <laughs> just something to say, I'll listen. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, because they, they had been under that stay-at-home order and, and hadn't got a chance to see anybody, so a lot of people yeah. just really wanted to talk, and so the hardest thing was getting to the next door. <laughs> but I Slowing you down. Yeah, but I, but I didn't mind it. I love meeting people. I love talking to people. Sure. I knocked on 5,000 doors when I was elected law director and defeated a 24-year incumbent, mm-hmm. so, so I'm pretty used to that. Yeah, um, it's just the old game. Yeah, I mean, I just, I just, I, I love people. Um, that's also part of why I was a trial attorney. I like interacting with people. Yeah. Um, and I think, and, you know, I think those qualities are going to serve me well if I'm elected judge, um, because you're you're dealing with with people on a, on a regular basis, and um, and that that's how I feel about that. And so, working within the system of the city, I mean, how is that a microcosm to the county? I mean, should you be elected? What do you look at? That's, that you say, this is something I can handle, this is something that needs handled. How do, how do you look from one stage to another? Well, I can tell you, um, you know, as I mentioned, I brought in the first ever victim advocate program. Mm-hmm. I've allowed my victim advocate to be used for the in, entire jurisdiction of the municipal court. Okay. So it's, it's my victim advocate. We prosecute New Philadelphia and the 13 surrounding townships. Mm-hmm. So we're not doing Dover and, and the other ones. Um, but my victim advocate is my victim advocate. I've made available to the entire northern half of, of the county, okay. uh, which is which covers um, the municipal court, and that's Dover, New Philadelphia, Strasburg, Bolivar, Sugar Creek, that that entire northern half of the county, which which is actually. It's actually about two-thirds of the county. The only part that's not covered is the part that's covered in the Southern District Court yep. down in Yorksville and Denison. Um, so I've already been active on the county level from that standpoint. Sure. Um, and then uh, in addition to that, um, uh, you know, you have to compartmentalize because you're doing a lot of different things. Yeah. I'm not just the attorney for the city. I'm, I'm, I also draft all the legislation for council. I also do legal opinions. Mm-hmm. I review every contract that comes in. Um, 
So you just you just have to be very organized and um, and keep track of what's going on, and um, and I again I think those are those are qualities that uh, would would help transition you well to uh, the county. I've I've done more than than just be an attorney. Sure. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and how does that experience come into play? I mean, how does it translate? I guess if you would go on and November fourth comes Marvin Fates our Tuscarawas County Common Pleas Court uh, judge. Mm-hmm. What what makes you right for that job? I mean, based on your prior experience. Well, I'll tell you. Um, you know, I'm, whoever wins is going to be replacing uh, retiring judge uh, Edward O'Farrell. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's been a, a he was a mentor to me coming up. Um, my parents would uh, hold him up. They, they would have me read things when I was a child about him. Um, made sure that I watched him on the news when he was making a name for himself. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, on, on the DUI cases when he was a municipal court judge. And then I shadowed him in high school. Uh, he encouraged me to go to, to law school mm-hmm. and uh, even gave me a pep talk when I was taking the bar exam. <laughs> but um, Which I hear sometimes people need going through the bar exam. <laughs> Seems like a stressful two months. <laughs> it's three days of academic hazing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Cut That's you off. Right. And, um, and what I've always been impressed with Judge O'Farrell, and this is can sometimes be highly unusual for a judge, <clears throat> is in, in court, he treats everybody with dignity and respect. Now, I don't, know, I don't agree with every decision he's made. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in fact, I'd like to see him be a little tougher on some of the drug cases than he has been in the past. But if you're in front of him, he is very personable and, um, and direct. And he treats you with the utmost dignity and respect, whether you are somebody who's just been convicted of a murder, mm-hmm. or if you are in front of him for a disillusion, which keep in mind that um, uh, a, the smallest percentage of what the, the common police court deals with is criminal cases. Those just get the most headlines. Yeah. Uh, larger percentage of what they deal with are domestic relations and civil cases. And, um, and I've just always been impressed with the way he treated people. And, and I connected with that because that's how I treated people in my law office when they came to see me. Um, if you came to see me in my law office, I'd probably be dressed similar to where I am now. Uh, you wouldn't see me in a suit, mm-hmm. unless I had court. If I had court, I was in a suit. But for the most part, I like to be dressed down and, and comfortable. And there's a reason for that. Um, think about how, hard, how bad things would have to be for you or a member of your family to seek out an attorney. Yeah, you just, I mean, unless you're going for a will or to get a contract done, you, usually you're in some some type of uh, distress mm-hmm. when you're going to see somebody, whether it's a divorce or a criminal case or a civil case where you've been wronged. And, um, you know, my, my old mentor um, in the law was Bill McLean. And I remember he told me when I, he, he was in with me and he said, you know, people expect to see somebody in a suit when they come, when they come to visit. <laughs> and, and I says, yeah, but that's not my style. And so I tried to t- treat people the same way Judge O'Farrell did with dignity and respect. Uh, I didn't think, you know, somebody who's afraid because of the circumstances they find themselves in, I don't think it serves them at all to have somebody in a stuffed suit sitting across from them talking a bunch of legalese language yeah. uh, that, that has no personal meaning on their lives. I took every person that sat across from me, I, I listened, 
Um, that was the first thing I did. I had them tell me their story. I took detailed notes. And then I explained to them what their circumstances were. And I would tell them sometimes, you know, let's say even something as simple as, as a, a divorce. Mm-hmm. Um, I would take them from the divorce process from start to finish all the way through so that they understood every, every segment of what was going to happen in their lives. Um, and then, you know, some, a lot of people came to see me were custody, child custody cases where um, the child might be in danger. And um, I might have to go in and file an emergency motion. In fact, I've, I've walked more than a few emergency motions past uh, Judge O'Farrell to help uh, somebody get custody where a child was in danger. And um, I just think that uh, having that type of touch and that type of connection and treating people with dignity and respect, regardless of their circumstances, so that they know that they've gotten a fair shake in front of you and that you're vested in what's happening to them, I think that's what makes me uh, very qualified to be a judge, and I think that's going to translate really well um, should I be fortunate enough to be elected. And you talked a little bit about uh, what you would change, uh, and drugs came up. Uh, on that note, I mean, could be that specifically, but what, what do you see that you would want to accomplish? Well, with regards to drugs uh, in particular, um, I, I do believe in drug court, but any drug court has to have accountability as its number one uh, factor. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also have to make, it's very important for a judge to make the distinction between the addict and the dealer. You know, the addict could be somebody, could be a child from somebody's family who made a bad decision that forever altered the rest of their lives and, and put their, their lives in, in danger. Mm-hmm. Um, that And then that person is being recruited by the drug dealer to take their poison, get hooked, and then recruited to maybe sell for that person um, in order to keep their habit going. And um, the drug dealer is the monster that's coming into our community, that's bringing drugs into our community, and uh, is pushing this poison onto our children. Um, Those are the ones you don't want to have a lot of sympathy for. Uh, Those are the ones that, um, you know, that you have to treat very differently than you would the the uh, addict um, who who got hooked. So I've I've seen cases where um, I've had two cases in my professional career where the person got hooked on drugs through prescription drugs um, and got addicted to oxycotton, and um, so they they were they were hooked. They weren't hooked by the the drug dealer, they were hooked by the pharmaceutical company, by Big Pharma. Yeah. And that led them down a terrible path that, that ultimately destroyed their lives in some cases. Um, so you have to have, you, you want to have compassion for the addict, and you want to make sure that uh, the drug dealers get the whatever punishment is, is appropriate for them, given the circumstances. Um, ethically, I can't make a, a commitment one way or the other on that, but what I can say is that um, it, while each case is, is judged on its merits, um, I care an awful lot about this community, and I'm going to want to make sure that it's safe. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm raising two little children here, ages seven and nine, with my wife, and I don't want to see circumstances where somebody is um, doing something that could ultimately cause harm to them or any any other family in this community. And um, so, you know, I I, the, the the drug addict is the one that you want to look at for a potential drug court. Uh, but it, like I said, a drug court has to have serious accountability to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, I would most likely, um, a lot of the times the judges uh, might be a little, 
detached from it, but I'm going to want that person in front of me, and I'm going to ask them questions, and I want to know, did you do this, this, and this? And I'm also going to explain to them, just like I did every person that came into my office, I'm going to explain to them, this is what's going to happen to you. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is what I'm going to expect of you. I used to, I used to when I was a defense attorney, and uh, the, one of the first things I did with most, most of my criminal defendants, I made, I made them get a drug and alcohol assessment done, and uh, if, if there was also uh, violence involved, they also had to get an anger management assessment done. And then they had to follow up with any recommended treatment. Those that didn't, I didn't take their cases. Those that didn't want to do it, I didn't take their cases. Yeah. Um, but for the vast majority, mine did. And so by the time we were in front of the judge for the first time on their criminal charges, by the time we were in front of the judge on their first criminal charges, my client had already been in, was already enrolled in a drug treatment program or an alcohol treatment program or uh, anger management program. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's important because um, they're gonna pay their debt to society. Uh, you know, there has to be a, a, a penalty, but they also need to be productive members of society. And um, when I've, I've, done, I've read a lot of studies on drug addicts and uh, there's a very, a lot of people say, well, you lock them up. They decided to take drugs. Um, the problem with that is the, the drug addict, and again, I want to distinguish that from the drug dealer. The, the drug addict uh, studies show there's a very high recidivism rate, meaning repeat offenders. You could lock somebody up. I've seen cases where a person's been locked up for six to nine years. First thing they do when they get out of prison, you know, they're in prison, so they've dried out, they're not on any drugs yeah. in there, they're very closely watched, and they get out of prison, and the first thing they do is go and start abusing drugs again. So that tells me that punishment alone is not the answer. Yeah, there has to be accountability. Yes, a price has to be paid, but we've got to make sure that we get the right kind of treatment program in place. And I've had a history of doing that. Um, whether it's with my victim advocate, making sure people are getting access to, the, to counseling that they need to get through a difficult time, whether it's been my, my criminal defendants that I made sure they got into a treatment program before we ever set foot in the courtroom. Um, that's something that, that I've always been involved with and, and I've played a, a crucial role in that. My office has also participated in the um, the uh, drug court program that the municipal court has. So, so I've got a lot of familiarity with uh, with these areas. In, yeah. in the municipal court, it's called recovery court. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, you might only save 10% of those addicts, but that's 10% that we don't lose. Yep. And that's critical. And that's 10% that aren't gonna be out there selling drugs, that are gonna be productive members of society, and that aren't gonna be a drain on our resources where we're having to treat people from overdoses. So that's critically important to me. Um, but you're gonna be accountable. You know, you might have to go to 90 days, straight of AA meetings, I'm gonna, I'm gonna wanna know, did you do that? Yeah. Um, because if you don't do those things, if you're not accountable, then you can go to jail. Mm -hmm. I don't have a problem with that. If you don't wanna be accountable, then you can go to jail. Yeah. Um, but, but I think that uh, you know, the studies show that it does, just locking people up doesn't do the trick. Um, so we have to have some sort of a, a treatment program. And so in the terms of the law, being a judge, what kind of discretion do you have when we're separating dealers from abusers? I mean, where, where is there room for you to, I mean, I don't want to call it a signature, but uh, what you want to do, what kind of discretion do you have? Does the law provide you? Well, actually the law provides a lot of discretion. Um, the, the most important thing a judge can do is the same thing that I did with thousands of clients that came into my office. You have to listen. 
you have to ascertain what the facts of the case are. You gotta see what's presented um, by both sides. And having been on both sides, I know how to separate the wheat from the chaff. Mm -hmm. And, and, I've, and I've, so I've seen that. And um, the judge has a lot of discretion. It really comes down to the person's judgment and the experience they have and in determining whether this person should be in a, a rehab program or be allowed to participate in a drug court program or whether this person should be locked up for a very long time because they're a danger to themselves and our community. Yeah. Um, and it really comes down to judgment. The judge has a lot of discretion. Um, there are some mandatory minimum uh, sentencing guidelines depending on the case, but um, it really comes down to the person's judgment. And that's why it's important to have somebody that can ascertain the facts, somebody that's been in the courtroom, seen both sides, and somebody who's had some experience with uh, dealing with people who've had drug and alcohol issues, which, which I have had. And so what would possess somebody to run for a judge. I mean, this, this job has got to take years off your life. I mean, it, yeah. this is just, it's, it's stressful by nature. Why, why do this? Well, I think it goes back to who I am. Um, I've, I've always been raised to believe that we have an obligation to make a difference with our lives and to help others. Um, and if you have the ability to do that, I don't think you can sit on the sidelines. I think you have to get in the game and you have to participate. You have to be in the arena. You have to put yourself out there. Um, and whether you win or lose, the fact is that you're trying to do something to benefit your community. Um, running for judge wasn't an easy decision for me. Um, in fact, it was a very difficult one because I love being a law director. Um, as you can tell from all the programs I've been involved with, yeah, uh, that's something that's very important to me. I love the city of New Philadelphia. I was born and raised here. I'm a Quaker through and through. Um, for your Dover listeners. Uh, <laughs> sorry. As, yeah, sorry about that. But... Um, but all three of us, I, when I would knock on doors in Dover, you know, they'd say, oh, you're from New Philadelphia. And I'd say, well, all three of us are from New Philadelphia, but I'm the good one. <laughs> but, what a line. <laughs> Who wrote that for you? <laughs> I came up with that on the fly. Um, but uh, you, I think you have an obligation to make a difference if we can. Um, and, and that's why I chose to put myself out there. That's why I've, I've chosen to, you know, knock on 7,000 doors um, over the course of this election. Um, I'd probably have twice that if we hadn't been shut down for several months. But, <laughs> but, um, but that's, that's, why I, that's why I do it. I think it's, you know, I think it's something that um, it's very important to our community. And when I saw that Judge O'Farrell was stepping down and I've always admired the way that he treated people in the courtroom, um, I didn't feel that the other two could could do that. I didn't feel that they had the experience that I have. Um, they're fine people, but um, you know, I think you know, having been on both sides of it, and having been a family attorney, and having been—I've been an elected official. Um, I understand what it means to uh, be responsible to the public that elects you, and to have that that personal connection to the public, and to put the public interest first and foremost always, and. Um, so I, I get that, and I really just wanted to make a difference. And if I'm not elected judge, I'm still going to make a difference as law director. Yeah. And uh, so, so that that's why I chose to run. It was important to myself, and you know, I want to I want this community to be as great as it was for me when I was growing up here, for my children, and 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 that's important to me. Electing a judge is 
interesting process. I want to call it a strange process, actually, just because, I mean, this is over a lot of our heads. I mean, elected, elected offices kind of should be. They should be something that requires specialty. But when we're talking about anything legal, and especially being a judge, I mean, how can somebody make a, make a solid decision on that? What should they, what, what should they be thinking about when they're choosing who should be their judge, one of their two Tuscarawas County Common Police Court judges? Well, I think you want to look at the person's experience. Um, I think you want to look at what's their character, um, what's their, their background, what are their personal beliefs. Um, for instance, um, I'm very, uh, I've always been personally pro-life. I'm a member of a high rate to life. Uh, I've also been personally pro-Second Amendment, um, uh, because, which is why I joined the NRA. Um, and, and those have been core values that I've had for, for a very long time. Um, and I think that's uh, something that you should look at. What, what is the person's core values? Um, what type of uh, activity have they been involved in in their lives? Um, you know, I, I've op- owned and operated my own personal, uh, my own private business here for 17 years. Um, and, uh, and, and it was based on one principle, uh, making sure that uh, working people could afford an attorney. Mm-hmm. Um, I frequently gave discounts to veterans. Um, um, I've also helped out with and, and done pro bono work to help people out. And you really want to look at, you know, can I identify with this person? Does this person represent my values? Um, do they have the experience? Do I believe that this person is going to protect my community and my family? And I think that's what you want to look at. I believe that I have those qualities. I, it's something that I've been doing for a long time now, uh, whether as a private attorney, a public defender, or as law director for the city of New Philadelphia. And I hope that they will look at that record and uh, choose to elect me. Where does politics come into play for a judgeship at this level? I mean, to bring up those first two uh, uh, pro Second Amendment uh, yeah. and uh, pro life, how does that how does that come into play for you? Do you think? Well, let's see. It's been um, there's been there's been at least four negative attack ads run against me um, in this race by um, by one of the candidates in this race. Um, so uh, I haven't chosen to play politics as much as that candidate has. Um, I've been running on my experience, um, but politics really shouldn't play a role in. A judicial race, <clears throat> but it's very difficult to divorce it from a presidential election that's this contentious. Sure, and yeah. um, and it's been it's been disappointing for me to see the vitriol on both sides, um, and um, and it's been very sad um, to see that. Um, I, I happen to think we're a better country than um, screaming and hollering at each other or we're not going to be friends with you because you supported this presidential candidate or that presidential candidate, or we're going to call you names or, yeah. or ascribe uh, personal political beliefs to somebody um, because of who they supported in a presidential election. Yeah. Um, you know, well, and honestly, you asked me about how politics came into play. Um, politics came into play in a big way um, when I was attacked. I was attacked because in 2008, I chose to support Barack Obama for president. Um, the reason I did that was very personal to me. I had a uh, cousin that um, was uh, the product of a crisis pregnancy um, uh, from sexual uh, assault. And um, 
was very close to this young man. He, uh, there was a 17 year age difference between us. He called me Uncle Marv. Um, I took one vacation from 1995 to 2006, and that was to go see him graduate from the Marine Corps boot camp. Oh, wow. Um, he was just an extraordinary young man. Uh, on 9-11, he was in high school. He decided then and there that he was going to enlist in the Marine Corps um, and serve, and he wanted to go and fight the terrorists. He was leading a, a Bible study group over there. He taught himself uh, Arabic um, <laughs> before he went over there so that he could communicate with them. His, uh, his sergeant over there, uh, commanding officer, in fact, told us um, that, uh, that he had determined that was going to be his last tour of duty because they wanted to send him to the Defense Language Institute because they couldn't believe he could pick up a language that quickly. Um, but uh, his name was uh, Marine Private Heath Warner. Uh, my family, we called him Heathy. Uh, he was uh, killed in combat operations uh, the day before Thanksgiving in 2006. Um, when it came time for the presidential election in 2008, uh, that weighed very heavily on me. Um, from my perspective, there was only one candidate who had promised to end the war and who was opposed to the war from the beginning. Um, uh, the other person who opposed the war was Donald Trump. Um, uh, so I found, I found myself... Um, after 20 years as a Republican, supporting a, a Democratic candidate um, over, over Hillary Clinton and then later over uh, John McCain. And, um, and that was a very difficult decision for me to do, but I did it to honor my cousin and his sacrifice. I didn't want other families to go through what we went through. And that was the worst day of my life, and it still is. Um, and I've had bad days. I've, I, you know, I, I talked about two of them here, the day my mother almost died and the day I almost died. Yeah. Um, but that, that, was, that was, to date at least, that was the worst day of my life. You know, I had to go and tell my parents that, uh, that their nephew was, was, was killed in Iraq. Mm. And uh, so I felt very passionate about it. I chose to go against my party for the first time ever uh, when Barack Obama didn't follow through on that and uh, end the war. Uh, I didn't support him again. Um, but uh, both President Trump and I had something in common in 2008. Uh, he actually supported Hillary or endorsed Hillary Clinton for president back then, and I supported Barack Obama. But um, both of us, both the president and I, also were uh, deeply opposed to the war in Iraq. And um, uh, that was why I chose to act. And I think. You ask about character, mm -hmm. and um, that didn't do anything for me politically. Uh, in fact, that was obviously since it's being used against me now. That 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 didn't do anything to help advance my career. Sure. I took a stand because I wanted to do something to honor my cousin and stop the war in Iraq. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, one candidate has chosen to attack me because of that, and he's completely left out the reason for why I did that, but, but I'm proud of, of, of uh, what I did to honor my cousin, and I think that the other candidates should be ashamed for uh, trying to twist that for political gains, because really that's, that's far below the uh, standard that we should set for ourselves as, as judicial candidates, and it's a shame that, that that happened. So with this marathon race coming down to what, two weeks, a week and a half? Yes. Are you are you still knocking on doors? Are you are you are you trying to rest a little bit? I mean, this, like we just talked about, it's not been easy. This, this has been had to be exhausting. What am I saying? I'm the first person. This has not been exhausting for me. We're all exhausted, but you've gone through this campaigning and it's just you know, turmoil. What's what's the next week and a half week got for you? Nonstop door knocking. Yeah. Um, 
we're also passing out uh, literature on doing literature drops uh, at various doors. I want to hit as many doors as I possibly can. Um, I knocked on 5,000 just to get elected law director, so. You put those kids to work, at least? <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, my youngest one, Buddy, who's, you know, I, I mentioned Heath Warner. Yeah. He, his, he's actually named after Heath. His middle name is Heath. Okay. Uh, and, um, yeah, actually, he, he's very good at math. Uh, he's, in the, he's in the gifted program at uh, South Elementary School in New Philadelphia. And, uh, and, and he, gets, he gets the math skills from his mom. Um, <laughs> you don't have to do math as a lawyer? Well, you do, but um, I was good with words. If I was good with math and science, I probably would have been a doctor. Um, but I was, I was always good with words and history, so, so I, I chose a different profession. But um, he was really proud of himself. Uh, he'd been keeping track of how many doors he went to with me, and he was, we took a big picture of uh, the week of the Dover Philly game because he... Uh, hit his 205th door. Wow! He, he'd knocked on. He'd gone to 205 doors with me, and um, and I didn't even know he was keeping track of it. But he was so proud of that. It's we important took, to we, him. We took a picture. Yeah, it's very important to That's him. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So they have gone uh, out with me, um, uh, but uh, like me, they also back up six feet. But people do like to see them. Yeah. And um, it can be a lot of walking. I didn't take him when it was super hot. Um, <laughs> uh, but I did take them uh, before the COVID shutdown. That's when you should have left, left them go and you, you sit back. You <laughs> let them knock on doors for you. Well, I don't want a nine and seven year old knocking <laughs> on doors by themselves. Oh, they're great spokespeople. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, that's just constant busyness. This yeah. is, it's gotta be, it's at least, well, I guess probably gets more stressful as you get closer to the yeah. Tuesday. Actually you get uh, sort of peace almost going into it. Yeah. Um, uh, because you know, ultimately, it's going to be in in God's hands, as far as I'm concerned, um, uh, as as to what's what's going to happen, mm-hmm. and um, uh, you know, whether it's myself or one of the other parties that are are, are elected, you know, I'm going to support whoever uh, gets in there. Um, I doubt they're going to want to ask me for advice, <laughs> but um, but I will pray for that person. You know, yeah. I, I'll pray that they have the wisdom to to do what. Uh, Judge O'Farrell did for all those years, and they are guardians and protect our community. And I'm going to be playing an important role on the outside. Um, should I not get elected, I hope to get elected. And yeah. I, I feel that uh, I'm the best qualified one for that. But um, you know, uh, there's two kinds of people that run for political office. There's there's those that run because they want to be something, and those that run because they want to do something. For the ones that are running because they want to be something, their entire identity is wrapped up in in what they do. Um, I'm not that way. Mm-hmm. My identity is wrapped up in who I am personally and my family, my wife, my children, my parents, my sister. Uh, that, that's what matters to me. Um, yes, I want to make a difference. Uh, yes, I want to uh, help others. And that's what I'm going to do no matter what. But um, if, you're one of the ty- if you're the type that's running to be something and your identity is wrapped up in that, if you lose, then you're, you're devastated, you're wiped out. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's your entire identity. Um, if you're running because you want to do something, you give it your best shot. And, and, um, and if you can't serve there, you find another way to serve. And um, yeah, it'll be, it's disappointing if you lose. And, I, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't think I'm going to lose. I think I'm going to win. But, um, 
I'll go on and do other things uh, if I don't, because I, I care deeply about this community and I want to make a difference. And I'm going to keep doing that. But uh, I'm running because I want to do something, not because I want to be something. Um, that's why I've done everything in my life, is to try and do something to help others. And that's what I'm going to do no matter what happens on November 3rd. Well, Marvin Fate, I wish you luck. I know that it's coming to an end and we're going to find out the results. We're looking forward to it. Good luck, my friend. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for your time. Thank you.